0: Welcome to the Immigration Hour today. It's great to be with you here. It's uh, June 4th, uh, 2019. And of course, there's lots of interesting things happening. I uh, spoke yesterday, this is your host, Charles Cook, by the way. I spoke yesterday at an event put on by uh, my city, Atlanta, uh, as part of the Welcoming America, Welcoming Atlanta initiative here in the city of Atlanta that I chaired uh, a couple of years ago under Mayor Reed. And after I got done speaking for about an hour and a half to a a large group of new immigrants to America, uh, it was interesting that the supervisor, the leader of the group came up to me and said, how much time do you spend learning this stuff? And I, I began to contemplate and realize it's not a question of how much time that we spend as immigration lawyers learning this stuff. It's how much time we spend relearning this stuff and keeping on top of the literal constant flow of changes that are occurring every single day in our practices and every single day in the world of immigration law. And so I just want to give a shout out to all the immigration lawyers out there who every day spend hours and hours of time uh, really trying to stay on top of what is an incredibly changing dynamic of immigration law, especially under this president. So today's show, we're going to spend at least the first large part of this talking about the changes that are coming up uh, every uh, every year. Uh, I think it's three or four times a year that a, the, the government publishes its regulatory policy agenda or its regulatory agenda uh, to let people know, hey, what is, uh, what's going on, and then the spring list uh, that's uh, now out from the DHS, Uh, the USCIS has somewhere in the neighborhood of about, it looks like 15 or so proposed regulatory changes that it wants to make to the uh, policies, to the regulations that are out there. And so let's take a look at some of these. Because I think some of these will, of course, made the news. Others, people really haven't, they have perhaps forgot uh, what, uh, what's going on out there, what, what, what's, what they want to do. We're going to start with a pre-rule stage. So they, they're separated into pre-rules. Hey, we're, gonna, we're thinking about this. We're going to do this. To so the proposed rules, hey, we, we, are, we are literally in the process of proposing this rule to the public. And then the final rule stage is, uh, hey, these are, these are going to go into effect here uh, shortly. So let's just take a look at the, the only pre-rule stage uh, proposal from the uh, folks at USCIS. It's about the EB-5 Immigrant Investor Program realignment. Uh, so the proposal is uh, by next March, so March of 2020, as we lead up to the regulation, that a DHS through USCIS plans to publish an advance notice of proposed rulemaking to solicit, solicit public input on proposals that would increase monitoring and oversight of the EB-5 program, as well as encourage investment in rural areas. Uh, they want to solicit feedback on proposals associated with redefining the components of the job creation requirement and defining conditions for regional center designations and operations. Now this is a shout out to uh, Senator Grassley who wants more rural development, uh, more rural use of the EB-5 program if he can't kill it completely. Uh, and it's interesting to see that it's still a year off. So before, right before the next election when they begin soliciting uh, information about this, and what they want to do, but I I will tell you, this uh, this portends a massive shift in uh, how EB-5 programs are run, uh, especially if they substantially redefine the job creation requirements and uh, tighten up this idea of indirect job creation. Uh, I would suggest that uh, there is a lot of room for mischief here, in this process and we will see exactly what's proposed eventually uh, by, uh, by USCIS, but I can tell you it's probably not gonna be done. All right, the next, next stage are these proposed rule stages. Now, the proposed rule change is actually a, uh, a proposal that's out there um, that is uh, not necessarily up for comment yet. Uh, as part of this process. and this, this next rule change, the first of these proposed rule changes, um, are requirements for filing motions and appeals to the Administrative Appeals Office uh, within the USCIS. The proposed changes are intended to streamline the existing process for filing motions and appeals and reduce delays in the review and appellate process. Now, the only way that you can reduce both these and streamline the process and reduce the time frame is to reduce due process as part of this. Well, certainly you could streamline the submission process by allowing it to occur online. That, that seems pretty much a no brainer and should have been done, I don't know, a decade ago, if not 15 years ago. But the adjudicative process, the question becomes: How do you, uh, how do you simpli- simplify that? Uh, they say the proposed changes are intended to promote simplicity, accessibility, and efficiency in the administration of USCIS appeals and motions, um, and they're currently soliciting public comment on this. Now, oddly enough, this was proposed initially in 2007, and, uh, or maybe even a little bit earlier than that, and then withdrawn as part of the process. If you want to comment on uh, or submit um, ideas as far as streamlining the process, you can contact William Renwick Jr., who is the Acting Deputy Chief of DHS USCIS. His phone number, by the way, is right here online, 202-272-8377, or you can email him at william.k.renwick, R-E-N-W-I-C-K, at uscas.dhs.gov. Um, there appears to be a little room for mischief here, uh, but not necessarily a lot of room for mischief. We all know that the, uh, uh, that the administrative appeals process is broken, uh, that the motion process is generally useless unless there's egregious service error. Um, but hopefully, at some point, uh, they will, in fact, make, uh, make a little room uh, for us as, uh, as part of this process. Um, now, there, there is, of course, a lot of uh, things that the USCIS wants to do here besides that. Let's, let's take a look at their next proposed rule which is the EB-5 Investor Regional Center Program. Now, this is actually a proposed rule different from the pre-rule rulemaking where you get to submit your ideas about this. So here's what they say in their proposed rule. Hey, we want to create a rule here uh, that considers making regulatory changes to the EB-5 Immigrant Investor Regional Center Program. Uh, DHS previously issued an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking to seek comments from all interested stakeholders, including on the following topics. One, the process for initially designated entities as regional centers. Two, the potential requirement for regional centers to utilize an exemplar filing process. All good regional centers do that anyway. Three, continued participation requirements for maintaining regional center designation they're beginning to do that, and frankly, that you know that needs to be out there um, for the process for terminating regional center designation. And uh, here's what DHS says: We gathered some information regarding these topics, and then we've sought additional information that can help the department make operational security updates to the regional center program, while minimizing the impact of such changes on regional center operations and EB five. Investors. Now, this was originally proposed, uh, and there was a comment period that ended uh, April 11, 2017. Uh, So, you know, that house was out there. It was actually initiated by the Obama administration. And they're proposing that their rulemaking on this, when they actually propose a rule, is going to be in March 2020, without an effective March 00, 2020. So a little unclear when this reg might pop out, but if you have comments or questions about the EB-5 program, you can call Brian Hunt, who is the Acting Chief, Business and Foreign Workers Division, Office of Policy and Strategy at USCIS, and his phone number is 202-872-8377, or you can email him at brian.j.hunt at uscis.dhs.gov. Uh, Now, uh, let's get to the the proposed rulemaking that's caused a lot of consternation in the public because it looks like it's really coming down right now. Uh, And this is the proposed rule to remove H4-dependent spouses from the classes of aliens, let's call them foreign nationals, eligible for employment authorization. On February 25th, DHS published a final rule extending eligibility authorization to certain H-4 dependent spouses of H-1B immigrants who are seeking employment-based lawful permanent resident status. DHS is publishing this notice to amend that final rule to remove its regulation allowing this. Um, It says that uh, this notice is put out in May of 2019. Uh, We know that the proposed rule is out there from its unified agenda and that if you want to comment on this, you can still send uh, your feelings on this to Brian Hunt at brian.j.hunt and uscis.dhs.gov. Unclear when this will take effect. The the, uh, folks that we've been talking to suggest it will happen this summer, but there is an immense amount of pushback for the hundreds of thousands of employees of major and minor companies around the United States uh, that work both for places like Facebook and in the local school districts and in the local businesses who would be immediately out of work as soon as their employment authorization would expire. Uh, Now, what this rule would do, of course, is is disallow the continuation of the, uh, the extensions of the process and allow people to have their work authorizations expire as part of the process as we move forward. Uh, So they wouldn't be able to renew their work permits. That's out there and that's probably coming down. Um, We've got this rule, which is the uh, proposed rule, strengthening the H-1B visa classification program. Uh, This is simply an announcement that uh, says sometime in August, DHS is gonna propose to revise the definition of specialty occupation, which has been the definition for as long as I can remember, to increase focus on obtaining the best and the brightest foreign nationals via the H-1B program, and to revise the definition of employment and employer-employee relationship to better protect US workers and wages. In addition, DHS will propose additional requirements designed to ensure employers pay appropriate wages to H-1B visa holders. Now, there's already a requirement that this happen, and a requirement that it is enforced by their folks at the Department of Labor, Wage and Hour Division. What I am guessing that they're thinking about here is actually saying that they people would have to be, the H-1B workers, would perhaps be required to be paid higher than the prevailing wage for the job, or perhaps a level four designation, since they are the best and the brightest. Now, this actually is a proposed regulation that is full of hubris. It's a hubris. It's the idea that we don't already attract the best and the brightest foreign workers to the United States, because I propose, in fact, that we do already bring these workers to the United States that are the best and the brightest. And get this, are the best and the brightest being denied? Of course they are, because we have a limited number of H-1B visas uh, that are part of this process. And with a limited number of H-1B visas, we have a problem that we are letting people that get PhDs and master's degrees from our own universities and colleges simply go back home because their jobs aren't picked in our marketplace, uh, in our H-1B marketplace lottery. So this, this, of course, has a great deal of mischief involved in it. There is this idea of what a specialty occupation is. Um, right now, we've already seen them doing this. And this actually, this regulation may help us in litigation on the current regulation because what they're doing now effectively is changing the definition of specialty occupation without changing the regulation. And now they're saying, oh yeah, we do have to change the regulation to change the definition. So maybe on our, in our fights for uh, uh, denials of H-1Bs, we can say, look, they already know what they're doing is illegal by changing how specialty occupation is defined through denials uh, because they want to change the actual definition and they recognize they have to change the definition. So this proposal may have some, some work to do, help for us in our, in our denials, in our, in our process uh, of filing litigation, but at the same time um, uh we will certainly see some terrible proposed regs. By the way, if you want to reach out to Brian Hunt, you can contact him right now at brian.j.hunt at uscis.dhs.gov to tell him what you think uh, about this proposed regulation uh, that uh, that his agency wants to put forward. Uh, now one here's one that is really going to impact everybody uh, that practices and you and uses, the immigration system. This is a proposal uh, set to come out perhaps in August of 2019, is what this says, uh, that USCIS conducted a fee review for fiscal year 2019-2020 for its immigration examinations fee account. Um, and uh, they, are, uh, they are going to, uh, looks like, propose to adjust the fee schedule via notice and comment rulemaking. Uh, now, if they want to do this for fiscal year 2020, they've got to do it now. So look for later this summer uh, the fees to be proposed to increase, and I'm going to guess that they're going to increase exponentially. You can, by the way, weigh in on this now by reaching out to Kika M. Scott, K-I-K-A, M. Scott. Her email is kika.m. scott at USCIS.dhs.gov. So be prepared for your filing fees to be increasing. Now, they haven't told us what they're gonna increase to, but we all know the USCIS, and they're gonna do as big a money grab as they possibly can because they wanna keep increasing the size of the folks working for the FDNS, the Fraud Deduction National Security Unit, and at the same time uh, really uh, make it more difficult to get uh, our work done as part of this process in an effective way. And we're gonna take our first break here on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour. You know what, we're not on America's Web Radio anymore. (laughs) That's why we don't have any commercials right now. Uh, So I do apologize, America's Web Radio is still active, but uh, we've decided to start recording these on our own because frankly, it's wildly more convenient for us. Uh, By the way, you can catch all our old podcasts on the Immigration Hour at iTunes. There's a new Immigration Hour on iTunes. You perhaps downloaded it from there. And the old session is still set up. We're also on SoundCloud and uh, TuneIn and a lot of other, uh, and Stitcher, uh, where we post our podcast each week. Share this with your friends, by the way. We post on Twitter at both my accounts CKUCK, C -C 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 Cook. On Twitter, also the Immigration Hour uh, or the immigra- at Immigration Hour, you can also catch us on Cook at Cook Baxter. But most of the fun stuff comes at uh, C. Cook. Follow us on Twitter and of course on Facebook. So I want to get back to this regulatory agenda thingy uh, that's going on because there is um, uh, some interesting other stuff going on. Uh, we've got the removal, the proposed the proposed removal quickly sometime now of the provision uh, for, of the 30-day processing for asylum-related EADs. DHS, USCIS, proposes to withdraw its regulatory provision, stating that USCIS has 30 days from the date an asylum applicant files his EAD to grant or deny that application, which everybody who's an immigration lawyer knows that they ignore. Um, by eliminating the 30-day, cons- 30-day provision, DHS will be able to maintain realistic CAPE processing times for initial EADs for pending asylum applicants, respond to national security and fraud concerns, maintain technological advances in document production. Wait, aren't they supposed to make it faster? I'm just saying, and address identity verification considerations. Um, so they've got this proposal out there. They say they're going to put this uh, out there right now, and they said May. Um, my guess is anytime in the next few weeks, we'll see this proposal, and bam, your EADs will go to eight-month processing. This is their way, again, this is their backdoor way of shutting down access for people who have asylum and legitimate claims. Now, why is there a 30-day provision on asylum claims? Well, the, pres- the presumption is you would apply for asylum as soon as you got here. You already have to wait 150 days to file. The 30 days was to get to the 180 days to get your work because this way you can begin supporting yourself so you don't somehow end up on the public dole or make living here so hard that you work illegally, which then puts you out of status. This is their way of making that more difficult. Yes, I know it's shocking uh, that DHS wants to make these things more difficult, but you and I both know that's exactly what they want to do. Um, Now, here is one that I found uh, really quite interesting. This is the updating the adjustment of status procedures for more efficient processing and immigrant visa usage. Now, presumptively, this is a good idea, but it's again, it's set out towards September, out to the fall, unclear what's going to happen with this, but they say they want to propose regulatory provisions designed to improve the efficiency in processing 485s. Reduce processing times. Improve the quality of OVTOL inventory data provided to partner agencies. That's our friend Charlie Oppenheim at the Department of State. Reduce the potential for visa retrogression. Promote sufficient users available visa, visa numbers. And discourage fraud or frivolous findings. They propose to eliminate, how are they going to do this? Eliminate concurrent filing of visa petitions and 485s for all applicants in any preference category. That doesn't make it more efficient. That punishes people. Come on. This, again, another proposal to punish people. By the way, if you want to reach out to Charles Lockie Nimick, please feel free to do so. He is the Deputy Chief of Residence and Naturalization Division at USCIS. You can email him at charles.nimick, N-I-M-I-C-K, at uscis.dhs.gov, and let them know what an extraordinarily stupid idea this is if you want to promote the process that helps people move forward to obtain their permanent residence in the United States. You want to improve efficiency and processing time? Hire more people. Do a better job of adjudicating cases. Make it electronic so a, a computer does most of the work. There you go. I just fixed it, and I didn't even need a regulation. Um, They want to make a huge change. The next proposal here is on the form N-648. They want to propose regulations addressing filing requirements and a process to designate and revoke the status of licensed positions who can complete an N-648. So taking the N-648 ability, from your client's private doctor who knows them best about why they can't learn a language, why they can't take the test because of disabilities, and then creating a whole other bureaucracy around these people. Now, there is a flip side to that, of course. We want to make sure people aren't faking disabilities by going to bad doctors. You know, sometimes you simply have to trust the system and take things with a little bit of grain of salt. But we're going to see those changes. But again, that's not until spring of next year that they've got that proposal pending on the table. Um, A couple other things that they want to do uh, is that will affect lots of people is credible fear reform. What does that even mean? And that's on the table for next spring as well. They're going to propose regulatory provisions to streamline credible fear screening determinations. They plan to establish various measures such as applying the mandatory bars to asylum eligibility to certain credible fear screening determinations and removing provisions related to novel or unique issues that merit consideration in a full hearing before an immigration judge. In other words, They want to make it impossible to pass a credible fear hearing interview. They want to make it just as hard to pass credible fear as it is currently to obtain asylum. That's what they want to do. And they want to try to eliminate the ability of immigration judges to oversee the credible fear process. If you think this is a monumentally bad idea, you should reach out to John Lafferty. You can reach him at John dot L, dot Lafferty, L-A-F-F-E-R-T-Y, at USCIS.DHS.gov, and let them know that this proposed rule is simply a bad idea uh, made incarnate. Uh, another provision that relates to asylum seekers and EADs is they DHS wants to propose by the end of this year, in December 2019, Regulatory changes intended to promote greater accountability in application processing for requesting EADs and to deter fraudulent filing of asylum application for purposes of obtaining EADs. Now, our friends at the BIA recently issued a decision this week that actually helps in that process by allowing immigration judges, apparently, to terminate deportation proceedings for people that filed asylum applications just to file a 42B or just to get an EAD, what we see is the implication of that particular case, if you read the facts of it, is the judge found the application itself was fraudulently filed. And if IJs can now find that asylum applications are fraudulently filed, this is going to severely hurt them for 42B applications. So this is simply another step to crack down on those those lawyers, and some non-lawyers, but a lot of lawyers, who thought it was a good idea to take advantage of a broken legal system. Uh, we'll see what ends up happening to them. But at the end of the day, they're going to propose a rule that tries to fix that administratively uh, at the end of the day. Um, now, another proposed rule that made some press recently, uh, and it looks like it's going to be proposed this summer, is a fee to register for the lottery for the H-1Bs next year. Now, remember, the DHS, uh, CIS, is going to go to an online registration, so we're not wasting our time filing H-1B applications that, have, you know, that are not going to get picked in the lottery. I mean, it's going to save employers a lot of money, but they want to make up for this by actually charging employers to register online in a system that cannot cost very much to operate and cannot cost very much to develop. I would guess, frankly, that I could probably hire an H-1B programmer to do this in a couple of weeks for somewhere less than $10,000. But we don't know what fee they're going to be proposing to charge. But be prepared, H-1B employers, they're going to be charging you a fee to make that happen. Uh, so you can see there's lots of these proposed rules that are, that that are just percolating in the mind of a lot of the folks at the USCIS, um, and uh, many of them are going to have some real real impact. I want to talk now about the final rules, the final rules that they actually are ready to go on and are just waiting final publication. They've already taken comments, uh, and uh, it looks like uh, that the final rule on inadmissibility on public charge grounds, it looks like a final action sometime in September 2019, getting ready for fiscal year 2020. CIS is reviewing public feedback on proposed rulemaking they did last year. Uh, the comment period ended in December uh, 10, 2018, and um, it looks like they're hanging this thread over people. By the way, you can still reach out to the folks at DHS. Mark Phillips is in charge of this at uh, at USCIS. You can reach him at mark, M-A-R-K dot P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S at USCIS.dhs.gov and let them know that this is still a bad idea. Now, it's not a bad idea to actually implement rules. This is so that you know. This rule was initially thought about, the comment period on this, this notice of proposed rulemaking in 1999. And they actually had a comment period, and they just never did anything with it for the last 20 years. And now they're moving forward with it. So it's not a surprise, but it's a surprise in how bad it's going to be as part of this process. Uh, the next uh, uh, final rule that they're gonna move forward with affects the T visa holders. Um, this uh, notice and comment period uh, uh, occurred both in 2002 when they, did, when they just dropped it. Uh, there was an interim fryer rule in 2016, and then they opened up another comment period in 2017. Here's what, they, here's what it is. Um, they wanna propose a rule which streamlines the application process and responsibilities for DHS, provides guidance on the public to how to meet the T-Visa requirement, implement legislative amendments to the T-Visa program. Uh, some of these amendments are not necessarily good, uh, but they look to go into effect sometime in the spring of next year. Um, the next uh, rule that's kind of out there is uh, is one that's actually sad. It's just one that the... Uh, Obama administration worked hard to create. This is the International Entrepreneur Parole Program. Uh, it's currently in effect by, 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 a, uh, by a court mandate, uh, but there is a final rule to end the program uh, that looks like the final action date is set for October 2019, rescinding the Immigrant Entrepreneur Program. Yeah, because we don't need entrepreneurs coming to the United States. Now, granted, Congress should be doing this, I get that. But it's clearly within the president's prerogative to allow this to happen. Um, and uh, it'll, be, it'll, it'll, it'll be sad when this program ends because we fought so hard to get the Obama administration to get their bum off the, off the ground to get it to work. Now, the next set of changes, the final rule, should take place in the next month or two. This is the EB-5 Immigrant Investor Modernization Program. This is the threat that's been over the program now for at least two years when the comment period ended. Um, what they're proposing is uh, uh, to uh, uh, make a number of changes, to sort of raise the minimum investment amount, uh, and, I, and I guess they have authority to do this, but I, I think Congress should be the one doing this. Allow certain EB-5 petitioners to retain their original priority, date. that's a good thing. Uh, change the designation process for targeted employment areas. I don't I really have a problem with that. And some other miscellaneous filing and interview process. But the big thing was the numbers. Now, And, and every year we've been talking, oh, the number's coming, the, the number's going up, the number's going up, get your money in now, get your money in now for the last two years or longer. And still there's nothing. But they're saying that sometime this summer they're going to get this information out there. By the way, if you want to find out about what might be happening with this, you can, you can email Edie Pearson. Edie is uh, edie.c.pearson, dot dot P-E-A-R-S-O-N, at USCIS.dhs.com. She is the Chief of Policy at the Immigrant Investor Program Office of USCIS. Um, now, a couple of the other things that uh, we see on here is a modernization of the H2B program. Uh, they're saying that that might go into effect sometime this summer. Uh, the H-2B program itself is a nightmare to use. Uh, and uh, the, this is, But these are comments and a process that the Trump administration wants to implement. I don't held, hold out much hope that, in fact, it's, uh, it's going to change. So those, those are the final r- proposed uh, pre-rule and final rule uh, USCIS changes that are on the horizon. The CDP, of course, has lots of changes as well, but not many that really effectively... Um, Uh, uh, affect immigrants coming to the United States, except for one, which is the collection of biometric data from people entering and exiting the United States. Uh, This is an executive order uh, focus. Um, It is, by the way, reflected as economically significant. They want to put an interim final rule in place sometime in 2019. And... uh, uh, what they want to do is provide uh, uh, DHS authorities collect biometric from certain people under a pilot program at 15 ports of entry. Um, and uh, we'll see uh, if, um, uh, if that's going to have happened. I mean, gonna, they want to photograph everybody upon entry and departure. They're already kind of doing that uh, at a lot of different ports of entry. We'll see what ends up actually happening as part of that process. Uh, there are not a lot of other CDP things that really affect folks. Uh, There is the implementation of ESTA at US land ports of entry. That should be interesting, they're looking at that in the fall. Uh, This is where uh, people from certain visa waiver countries provide certain biographic information at land ports of entry on a paper I-94W. Under this rule, travelers will instead provide this information to CBP electronically through ESTA prior to application and entering the United States. It'll be interesting to see uh, how how that program actually takes effect. Now, ICE has, uh, of course, a number of things that they want to do. They want to increase a fee for the visa security program. Uh, They want to actually have a maximum period of stay, proposed rule for a maximum period of stay under the F program and change it from duration of status to replace it with a maximum period of stay. And options for extension. That's sitting out in the spring of 2020. Uh, I wouldn't hold my breath for that actually taking effect anytime during the first term of the Trump presidency. Uh, they are increasing the fees. Uh, that's going to go in effect soon uh, for the CVIS program. Uh, they're saying the fee was last adjusted in 2008, yet schools charge monumental fees to make this program happen. So I would imagine it's not going to be a pretty picture. Uh, when they have that. ICE also is in a final rule stage they want to implement in the fall. Uh, They want to change the Flores settlement. By the way, President Trump, Flores was not a judge. It's actually a little girl who was part of the settlement process. Um, And uh, what they want to try to do here is uh, basically allow them to keep detaining children, basically, as long as they want to detain them. Uh, That's a terrible idea. The Flores settlement was a good public policy. Then, it's a good public policy today. All right, let's take our uh, next break here on the Immigration Hour. We'll be right back. We're gonna, when we talk and we get back, which for you will be momentarily, uh, we're gonna talk about ICE, ICE deaths at the border, a little bit about DACA, and some of that uh, Department of State social media stuff. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour in America's web. Uh, no, we're not, I keep saying it. it just comes out after a decade. It was just coming out so often. So I do apologize. Um, welcome back to the Immigration Hour. The is Charles Cook. It's great to be with you still today. Uh, You know, uh, ICE keeps killing people. Now, that's kind of a grave statement to make. Um, But uh, Splinter reported yesterday, and Samantha uh, Grasso, that a leaked ICE memo says that multiple deaths of immigration in custody were preventable. At least two deaths of immigrants detained by ICE, along with injuries sustained by multiple immigrants in detention, were preventable. I guess the Young Turks obtained this on Monday. The memo was addressed to then acting ICE Deputy Director Matthew Albens. In it, a supervisor for ICE's Health Services Corps, an arm of the agency tasked with providing health care to detained immigrants, wrote that the um, IHSC is, quote, severely dysfunctional and unfortunately preventable harm and death to detainees has occurred the supervisor alleged in the memo that they themselves provided senior leadership with numerous early warnings on detainees at high risk for harm or death and that the IHSE was highly effective at dispatching these warnings. However, the supervisor continued by detailing more than 12 cases of ICE failing to provide proper medical treatment to detainees, at least two involving the death of immigrants. Suicide victim Mr. Efrain de la Rosa could have been saved, quote, the memo says to the victim. The document was gone to state that ICE received, quote, a total of 12 significant event notification reports prior to his death depicting suicidal ideation and psychosis. Key components of ICE would not even review the reports, according to the memo. Moreover, Mr. De La Rosa was not being treated for psychotropic medication. Instead, he was remanded to segregation. His suicide closely mirrors the previous suicide of Mr. Joseph Jimenez at the Stewart Detention Center, memo says, which is here in Atlanta. Another case reflects a detainee identified as a suicide risk, having been described, prescribed an antihistamine at Stewart. Um, ICE says that this was a systemic problem. Uh, ICE, you know, they've, they've allowed six and maybe seven children to die in their custody. Uh, a se- no, there it is. A seventh uh, died in their custody. Uh, several kids, uh, because of their metering uh, program, have died crossing the river to come in to get picked up by ICE and CBP at the border. So the question becomes, what is ICE going to do about this? Uh, when, will our, uh, when will our outrage uh, end on this? Are, are, do we have an outrage? Is this something that uh, we should be concerned about? You know, I I will tell you as an immigration lawyer, it is monumentally disheartening uh, to see our government, which should be a light to the world on how we treat immigrants, especially those seeking refuge. Whether you think it's refuge or not is not relevant to that question. The asylum prospect should not be a punishment. It should not be a punishment. Um, It should be It should be a humanitarian process that allows people the human dignity to process their case, even if they are ultimately denied and deported to the United States. They should say, they treat me with respect. I understand why they didn't approve me. Thank you very much. But instead, we rush people through a system and a process that's designed and implemented to dehumanize people. And that's immoral. And we are better than that. You know, this this story follows up another story about CBP, that hundreds of minors, hundreds, are being held at U.S. border facilities beyond their legal time limits. Abigail Aloner, and Maria Sacchetti reported in the Washington Post that nearly 2,000 unaccompanied migrant children are being held in overcrowded U.S. Border Patrol facilities beyond the legal 72-hour time limit including some who are 12 years age and younger. That means they're sleeping on the concrete. They have mylar blankets. They're pooping and peeing in an open toilet. This is not moral. It's illegal, first of all. But, my God, really? Um, now, the folks at HHS are kind of blaming CBP and ICE on this. CBP is blaming ICE, saying ICE isn't picking them up. A thousand of these 2,000 will be been with Border for longer than 72 hours, and more than 250 children have been there longer than a week. Um, now, these are unaccompanied children, not the ones with their parents. One official said this, I don't have any beds because we're meant to be a short-term processor. We don't even have holding beds. I have stools and I have benches, but I have no beds. Um, they're certainly not built to house children, close quote. Uh, now, border officials say the immigration system is so overwhelmed that the normal process to funnel children out of DHS, out of Border Patrol custody to CIS, HHS, has broken down. But HHS said the is aware they have two children who are detained and awaiting transfer, and that it has space for them, but they say the agency responsibility for minors begins only once they're delivered to their custody. HHS is saying, hey, we're not getting the, 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 the children fast enough. DHS said HHS is not placing them in, children, in f- facilities fast enough. You know, this is a management nightmare, an incompetent management nightmare. People need, man. honestly, where's the Democratic Congress holding people accountable? And I'm not talking about bringing the head of HHS. You bring in the person at, HHS at the Office of Regulatory Settlement saying, What is going on here? What is going on? Why is this happening? Um, Now, is is there a way to solve this? Of course there's a way to solve it. There is enough money for border enforcement, but they're not allocating intentionally. ICE and CBP are not, and intentionally not, allocating this property. By the way, the Washington Post was able to go inside one of these facilities last week. They saw adults and toddler children packed in concrete holding cells. One Border Patrol facility, which had a capacity of 300 people, was holding 775 people, 775 people. Hallways and offices designated for photocopying, other tests now had crates and boxes of bread, juice, animal crackers, baby formula, and diaper. In one cell, a cell, these are cells. These are not, j- these, are, these are cells, like in a jail cell held adolescent boys, many of whom stood in a small space peering out through a glass wall. One stood urinating behind the low wall that obscured the toilet in the back. In the adjacent cell, several boys who appeared to be of elementary school age slept curled up on concrete benches, a few clutching emergency mylar blankets. Outside in the parking lot, a chain-link fence enclosure held dozens of women and children, many of them eschewing the air-conditioned tents to lie on the pavement." Oh my God, this can't be allowed. This is this is just, somebody said this is, this is disturbing. This is immoral. We are better than this. We are absolutely better than this. There are places to bring these children. If ICE really wanted to help these, they would say, look, Americans, we have a crisis on our, we have a humanitarian crisis on our border. Here's what we need your help. Who can take in children? Who can take in families? Who can help us get them to court on time? Who can I will tell you if ICE and DHS did this, Americans would step forward. They would say, we will do this. To believe that they would it denigrates Americans. We are fully capable of handling this problem. And it is terrible that DHS has not done more at Border Patrol, at ICE, and at HHS to call out the better angel of Americans to make this happen. Hey, I want to, I, I know I get a little worked up talking about it because it just like makes me feel, ang- it just gets me angry because I know that we are better than this. I know we are better than this. Uh, I, I want to finish up the podcast by talking about a couple things. One, of course, is DACA. This week DACA's back in the news Uh, Last week, um, um, the Solicitor General and DHS asked the Supreme Court to hurry up, hurry up, make a decision on the case, hurry up. And what they were trying to do is force the reply brief that is due in June to be filed in May, which would have allowed the court in conference to decide if they're going to take the case and whether they're going to hear the case at all, because it's still unclear whether they're going to hear the case. And the court blew them off. The court said, yeah. We're not going to do that. We're going to let's follow the normal rules. And it was a slapdown to so Solicitor General, a slapdown to the Trump administration. Uh, it could be that the Supreme Court doesn't even take the DACA case. I mean, do they really want to get in that quagmire? They're not going to consider it until October. When they, you know, they had a session in June, they come back in October. Um, they're not going to consider it whether they're going to even take the case until October. And it's quite possible they say, you know what? I, I don't think we want to be part of this. This is a fight between Trump. And Congress, let them keep fighting it. We don't need to be part of it. DACA's in place. The injunction's in place. Let it stand. You know, we all know, by the way, that the Trump administration can end DACA. All they have to do is follow the APA, publish a rulemaking, argue why this is no longer necessary, why we don't want to do this. All you got to do is, every judge that looked at this says, you just didn't follow the rules. Now, this is the hubris of being president, I think, because Obama was the same way. The reason DAPA was struck down was because he didn't follow the APA. Hey, we're going to create this special rule. We're going to go to the APA. It's within my authority as president and discretionary enforcement of immigration law to create a category of work authorization for people who come forward, and we intentionally delay their removal from the United States based upon them coming forward and us assuring they're not a security risk. But the Obama administration, in a fit of Ubers, decided not to do it. So DACA is back, it's still available, it's not gonna be looked at by the Supreme Court for quite some time, and then we'll go from there. Now finally, I I, of course could not uh, end the show today uh, without talking about uh, the social media, the new social media question uh, at the uh, the Department of State uh, as part of their process. Now we knew this was coming, it was only a matter of time uh, before, Really, even CIS requires this, um, and so the Department of State um, put up uh, just—I didn't even really announce it. They just put it on their question, um, and um, this is for people that are applying to immigrate to the United States. Uh, there will now a question on the drop-down menu on the uh, on this process uh, that says, "Hey, you need to are you do you use social media? If you uh, if you." Um, use social media, then uh, you need to fill out the following question. You need to give us uh, your uh, um, uh, your questions as part of this. You need to tell us what your ID is on social media, and uh, then you need to tell us which social media is as, as, as part of this, and uh, and uh, then tell us your, your name that is listed on social media. And uh, this is something that they were gonna do last year, and now it's in effect. Now, Oddly enough, and one of my, the drop-down menu is interesting uh, because it, it includes what uh, Facebook, uh, WeChat. I mean, all the big international and U.S.-based uh, social media. But one of the things they put on there is uh, MySpace. Uh, you know, I think MySpace is closed now. If I'm not mistaken, MySpace uh, no longer exists. You guys can correct me if MySpace exists. Uh, but I'm pretty sure MySpace is gone. Yes, it is. Uh, um, no, I can't get into it on my site. Uh, but uh, MySpace is really not out there. So it's interesting to see how the uh, uh, how our friends in uh, social media uh, will react to this. As this this may cause people who intend to immigrate to the country to say, you know what, uh, I am uh, I'm going to get off social media. I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be done with this. Uh, but it's uh, it's going to come to it's it's already clear that USCIS uh, Google's people I mean they definitely go in and search people on Facebook and LinkedIn we we've had those experiences in interviews people ask questions about uh, things they've said online or or say hey you don't your social media content doesn't say you're married and you're sitting here with your wife and you never have a picture of her up uh, so clearly you want to make sure all your focus is private um, and uh, if there's something that you don't like or you don't know what the U.S. authorities would like and you think it might affect your immigration? You might want to go ahead and delete that uh, as part of the process, as part of your immigration process. We certainly warn all our clients that their social media should be clean, and we try to vet our clients through social media before we file their cases. Well, it's been a great week. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We'll be back next week. Uh, maybe we'll have some music by then if I can figure out how this works on GarageBand. It's great to be with you. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, uh, feel free to email me at chuck@immigration.net. Of course, reach out to all those folks at USCIS if you have comments about these regulations. And until next week, this is the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio.